done. Three who were here last week aren't here this week. I hope it's not because of that. But yeah, during flu season, it gets a little crazy uh, as far as uh, numbers and such. I'm glad y'all are here. Are y'all fired up for yes. First Timothy? Yes. I mean, it is go time on First Timothy here. Um, is everyone feeling nice and well-rested and not overwhelmed from all angles? I think everyone I've spoken with this week is in this state of, oh my gosh, why is everything so crazy? And so, <clears throat> yeah, because of the rest sermon. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we have a huge privilege on Wednesdays to stop and just chill out, consider the word, and kind of regroup. And so my hope is that that does, uh, that that's what happens with us tonight as we're in First Timothy. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, we humble ourselves before you uh, tonight. We are thankful for the opportunity to stop down in the middle of the week, to regroup, to reconsider your word, and uh, to be encouraged, and to be edified, and to be built up, and to be informed. Uh, we love you very much. I'm so thankful for this group that is here tonight, and we do pray for the many who are sick with the flu and other things right now. Lord, I pray for our pace. Uh, I pray that um, as many of us have gone from uh, a 100 mile an hour pace uh, right before we got here, that uh, tonight that we could take our time with the word, and I pray that that would help us to maybe have a healthier pace when we leave here. Um, there are many in this church right now and in this community who seem to be burning the candle at both ends, and so I'm a little heavy hearted uh, about that tonight. And as we talk and see this, talk tonight and see this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, I pray that we would be encouraged by your goodness and your direction. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy. What was the main point of Galatians? Because we're just doing one. And so we got to know what's the main point. These are overview studies. Faith. Galatians was faith. Ephesians was what? Grace. Philippians was what? Humility. Not humility. Humility. Colossians is what? New life. First Thessalonians is what? The second coming. And second Thessalonians is what? That's the most recent one. That was a problem. <laughs> Here's the thing. Last week's Second Thessalonians study was on hope. And it was kind of a dull study, I'm not going to lie. You can't hit a home run on these things every time. And last week I just felt like we were drudging through the study and we're talking about hope. And I'm like, I'm the one teaching it, so I'd, uh, the fault lies on me. But it just feels like, you know, so they're talking about this hope and this thing that kind of, I guess can sound common, but... We should never consider it common because we've been given grace and mercy that's otherworldly by a God who created us in his image, which is just this remarkable thing. But um, it was a little bit tired to be a hope message. And so, um, I, I, I don't know, I, I hope that tonight uh, we can rally a little. And uh, even if we're tired, even if it's been crazy, even if we would really honestly rather be taking a nap, let's just push through and talk tonight about First Timothy. Now... This is the first letter in the New Testament 
that Paul uh, wrote to an individual and not to a church. So it's kind of a unique thing. This is the first letter in the New Testament that Paul has written to an individual and not to a church. Galatians was written to the church in Galatia. Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, and so on. Timothy is one of Paul's closest and most trusted disciples. There's almost a father-son sort of relationship here. We know that Paul wasn't married. At least most people would say that. Um, And so no kiddos. But this relationship between him and Timothy was special. He was a disciple of Paul. And he was close and trusted. And what's gone on in that discipleship is Timothy has become the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So consider the things we saw in Ephesus in the letter written to them. Well, now Timothy is the one who's the pastor at the church at Ephesus. So one of the main problems that Paul addresses, a lot of times we, we consider some of these letters um, situational sort of letters or what, you know, something that's going on there. Um, and what the issue here at the church in Ephesus that Timothy is the pastor of, the main problem that Paul addresses in the church is regarding a growing and powerful rogue leadership. That's what's going on here at the church in Ephesus as Paul is writing to young Timothy. There is a powerful and growing rogue leadership in the church, and Timothy as the pastor has a significant responsibility to address and deal with this issue solidly. He cannot waver. He cannot be weak on this. He cannot be timid. One of Timothy's problems, and we we think of Timothy, we think of you know, young Timothy, and one, one of the issues that is a recurring theme that Paul addresses with Timothy, Timothy's problem was he was timid. And he, that, that was, you know, everyone has their strengths, everyone has their weaknesses. One of his weaknesses was that he was timid. And so what Paul's doing is he's looking at what's going on in the church in Ephesus, and he's looking at Timothy, his disciple, and he's saying, man, there is a large, growing group of strong leaders who are very educated, very well-versed, very well-spoken. And Paul's saying, I'm a little bit worried if Timothy can handle this or not, because Timothy has a tendency to be timid. So this letter is him encouraging Timothy. Paul's concerned about his ability to handle the situation, but he's not concerned about the God of Timothy. So he's trying to point Timothy to his Lord so that he will handle this situation properly. So, at this point, he knew Timothy needed encouragement. So first, encouragement. So first, Paul considers what it is that a leader should teach. So he's saying, okay, let's, let's go back to some basics of leadership, Timothy. In order for you to handle this problem and continue to be a good pastor at the church in Ephesus, we got to consider what a leader of a church is supposed to teach. And the first thing that he says that he talks about is what you should teach is not false doctrine, because that was the problem. So it wasn't that Timothy was teaching false doctrine, it was that others were teaching false doctrine. So he says, here's what a leader should teach. First things first, not false doctrine. The basis of Timothy's leadership in the church at Ephesus, Paul says, must be his opposition to false doctrine and his teaching of the truth of Christ. Look at 1, 3 through 7. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It is good to remember that just because you make confident assertions does not mean that you have any blessed clue about what you are talking about because that's what was going on in this church. They were making confident assertions. They were appointing themselves as teachers. It would be like me being gone on a Wednesday, someone coming in and saying, all right, I'm the teacher. I'm a, I, I got some people here and charge a fee. And then uh, let's go into this and uh, making these confident assertions, well-spoken, well-versed, but not actually having any clue about the very things they're making confident assertions about. Look at 6, 3 through 4. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's not just that he's a little puzzled. He's a moron and understands nothing, and he is puffed up with conceit. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's people, who are depra- among people who are depraved in mind. Not God's people. I'm sorry. I read. I messed that up. Puffed up with content, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Those who are maybe they're trying to be God's people but are getting terrible teaching. Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. In particular, he's talking about great financial gain. What do we learn in these verses about the false teachers? You take all that into account, what, is, what I said in chapter 1 and then chapter 6, what do we learn about these false teachers? Just bullet points. What, what do we hear? Controversy. Controversy. Puffed up. What does that mean? Haughty. Not haughty. Not like hot. Yeah. 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 Not haughty, but haughty. Are we clear? Are we clear on that? I don't know. Let's quarrel over it. No. Stir things up. They cause friction among people. And part of that, really when you look at it and you look at the nature of it, part of it is people will come in to see the friction. And then you got a bigger crowd. When you have a bigger crowd, you can charge more. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But we learn a lot about these false teachers. They, um, the main thing that we want to see here is that they were a lot, a lot of their false teaching was about keeping the law. They were obsessed with the law. The law is not good for people who don't have faith. You can't go law first and then faith. I was had a great discussion today at lunch with Brad Gallion about this. The law is not good for people who don't have faith because they think, I just got to do this. If I do this, God will love me. If I do this, I'll earn favor. If I do this, I'll earn grace. If I do this, I'll earn salvation. But the law is for people who have faith in Christ because the law was never meant to be the measure for Christians now. The law, only for those who have faith in Christ, then gives you direction and wisdom, insight, discernment as a tutor, as a teacher. They were getting it out of order. 
They were the same as the other false teachers saying that you have to make a showing in the flesh. You have to prove your own righteousness before you're counted as righteous. That is, um, I read about it a little, and on the myths and endless genealogies, um, it sounds a little bit like the argument on, um, oh, what was it that I read? It was, uh, it was real obscure. It, it, there wasn't a whole lot of particulars about it from what I read. It just sounded like things that had crept in that were um, sort of maybe um, sort of a, like tales that had turned into truth kind of a thing, something that I read. And the endless genealogies is just arguing over um, you know, who who comes from who and what that means in the line and the lineage. So I, I don't know the particulars of it. Everything I read was kind of obscure. Um, they were all about the law. The news that we have to declare as Christians is not about our obedience. That's not the Christian message. Our obedience is not the Christian message. The gospel is not for perfect law keepers. And that was part of what the false teachers were making confusing. They were saying, you know, the gospel and this Jesus is for those who keep the law. But that just kept getting hung up on the law. But the law is for those who have faith because then it can be a tutor and a teacher. But otherwise, other than that, it just says you're dead because no one can keep the law perfectly. So if all you have is the law, the wages of sin is death, you're dead. You didn't keep it perfectly. So you can't get that out of order. But let's consider who the gospel is for. Look at one eight. So who's the gospel for? Is it for the good people? Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. False doctrine says that Jesus came for righteous people, but he didn't. He came for all the people on that list. That's who the gospel is there to reach, and we're going to understand some of the motive behind it in just a second. So the first thing that Paul considers, you know, what should a leader teach? Number one is not false doctrine, and number two is the gospel. We don't ever stray from it. We're a couple thousand years into this New Testament church thing, and we never grow out of our need for the gospel. We never move on from that to something else. If Timothy wants to lead the church well, he must teach the gospel. Look at 112. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, <coughs> persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What does Paul point to as an example and illustration of the gospel? Yeah, his own life. Yeah. He says, if you want to see a picture of the gospel, look at me. You have to see how different this was from the false teachers who were self-righteous. 
He says, if you want to see a picture of the gospel, an illustration of it, look at me. Look at my own life. Um, what is found in that illustration? The illustration he gives us his own life, what do we find in that illustration? His sins. What do you have a sense of when you listen to what I just read? Those are Paul's words. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What do you hear there? Humility? Glorifying God. God chose a man who knew in his heart what it meant to commit a great wrong. And he chose a man who knew in his heart what it meant to be forgiven of a great wrong. So the first thing that we teach is not false doctrine. The second thing that we teach is the gospel. And the third thing is not deceiving spirits. Look at 4, 1 through 3. It says, now the spirit, capitalized, Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There are very real deceiving spirits and Sometimes we kind of think of that, and I think maybe in terms of sort of like hocus-pocus kind of stuff, like, nah, there's just people who mess up. No, there are genuinely people, Hymenaeus and Alexander are an example that were already given in this text, who will believe what the devil leads them to believe. Um, Jerry asked a question about um, this last week, a really great question, saying, you know, what we read in one of our previous studies, when the when the deceiver comes, it says the man of lawlessness comes. But if God has defeated Satan, what power does the man of lawlessness have? It was a very good question. And I took him to 2 Corinthians 4 because in 2 Corinthians 4 we had this reminder. It says, for the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's a lowercase g God. And what that tells us is that while God is completely, sufficiently powerful for all things and is seated, reigning and ruling, the God of this world is still Satan. And it's an important reminder for believers. Satan is the God of this world. Satan's not the God of you. You're not of this world. You are out of this world. You are, you are pulled from this. You are redeemed from it. But the God of this world is Satan. And there are dark spirits who will lead people to believe terrible, ugly things that will lead their lives to ruin and destruction. I've seen it time and time again. And it is not just because someone didn't get it. It's because they, they followed the darkness. It's because they listened to the voices. And it's because the enemy led them astray. The God of this world, what's his name? To blind the minds of the unbelievers from ever seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He wants to blind them so they can't see what you're supposed to be taking to them. The gospel. So as you're actively engaging people with gospel and evangelism and leaning forward and hospitality and love to, to, to strangers, you want them to see the truth. And the God of this world will do everything he can to keep them from doing so, to keep them from seeing it. 
we get numb if we lose sight of the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on. And letters like this and verses like, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Some spirits are deceitful and demons have their own, their own teaching, their own curriculum. They give it in those terms. So you combat that with the gospel. False teachers, because of this, will never go away. That's what he's addressing here. The problem with false teachers is they will never go away. Again, a couple thousand years here into the New Testament church, do we still struggle with false teachers today? Absolutely. Is the warning given to Timothy to watch out for them just as applicable today? Absolutely. Dever says, a pastor can never teach A pastor can never teach so well that he will stop struggling with false doctrine in the church. A a pastor can never teach so well that he will stop struggling with false doctrine in the church. You can be the clearest, most expository, verse by verse, don't skip anything, take it seriously, don't ignore the hard parts, pastor, and you're still going to have false doctrine in the church. You can have a plurality of pastors like that. You're still going to have false doctrine in the church. You're still going to have the struggle of the God of this world wanting to blind the minds of the unbelievers from seeing Jesus Christ's face, from seeing his glory. And you're going to have demons who have their own curriculum that undercut what you said. And we have a reality that the gospel is powerful. Remember Romans 1. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. That's why you don't just stick to your, your, your ability to expose it. You just stick to it. Stick to the gospel. That is what we share. That is what we teach. A pastor can never teach so well that he will stop struggling with false doctrine in the church. The problem with false teaching is that it's so dang attractive, right? That's the problem. False teaching isn't a problem because it's unsavory. It's a problem because it's very, very, very savory, very desirable. So here's my question. Why might false teaching, particularly related to the law, and legalism, do this, 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 and this. Don't do this. If you want to be right with God, you've got to do these things to earn that. That's false teaching. Why might that be attractive? It appeals to the flesh. How does it appeal to the flesh? Yeah, because you're in control. Does anyone have a control issue? Anybody? Every human being, go ahead, yeah, put your hands up, human beings, yeah, put your hands up, yeah. That, that is, um, we love to be in control, and we love to think that we are the ones causing our salvation, and so sometimes this legalism of, you know what, don't do this, do this, say no to these things, say yes to these things, moralism, I mean, is it not attractive to, to live by something that condemns illicit behavior? Is it not attractive to lead your children to... Um, to experience self-denial um, for spiritual reasons. That's what was going on here, asceticism, even discipline for spiritual reasons. Here's the reason it's false doctrine. Dever has a note, he says, well, whenever we do good things, this is what Bill just said, whenever we do good things in order to earn God's favor, we have accepted false teaching. Whenever we do good things in order to earn God's favor, We have accepted false teaching. We have fundamentally misunderstood Christianity to be about us and our character when it is fundamentally about God and his character. The gospel exposes God's gracious love and mercy to us in Christ, not our upstanding characters. 
Look at 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. As he's talking about these false teachers and what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ, your hope is not set on your ability. If you have not heard Greg's message from Sunday, please go listen to it. It is a perfect, perfect, perfect match, yet again, with what we're looking at on Wednesday. We have our hope, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is why the message must be taught even, why the gospel must be taught even maybe especially when it becomes less popular. Because if it's becoming less popular, that's because people don't have an appetite for it. The false teaching is what is becoming uh, savory and desirous. So we don't teach false doctrine. We don't teach on deceiving spirits. We don't allow those things. We watch out for those things. We teach the gospel. And then the next thing he says is what a leader should teach is your doctrine and your life. Look at 412. 412 says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He doesn't just say, don't let them despise you. Timothy, you're young, but you're just as much a pastor as anyone else. Don't let them despise you. The encouragement Paul gives them is, don't let them despise you, meaning take away the reasons they might despise you. You set, a, you set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. If they despise you because of that, praise God. That's okay. That's, why, that's called suffering for faith. But he says, don't let them despise you, but set an example for them in these things. Um, where am I at? In love, faith, and in purity, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Timothy is a good Christian leader. Give yourself to the church, to the teaching. Keep a close watch oh, so that all may see your progress. A good leader is someone who people can look at and say, they're growing in holiness. They're progressing. Why else would you say, follow my example? You have to be setting an example. Persist in this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. On yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What must a good leader, what must a good leader keep a close watch on, according to these verses? Close watch. What he's teaching, and what else? Himself. What's the difference? Why? Like, well, what's the difference between those two first? Which one of those, which one of those I, I'm actually not sure what the answer is. I know what I think. Which one of those do you think are, is easier for people? The teaching. Yeah, I, I love studying theology and doctrine and keeping a close watch on that, and I can order more books. Heck, I have a book budget. As part of my job, the church has a book budget, and I get to order books and read them, and I love keeping a close watch on the doctrine. Why is it harder to keep a close watch on your life? Self-deception. Why else? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, to keep a close watch on your life is not even close to what the false teachers were doing, right? Because if they were, they would realize, there's a problem. I keep messing things up. I've got issues, and I need to tend to these issues faithfully. You can't tend to issues in your life if you don't keep a close watch on your life. Everyone has issues. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is in need of grace. Everyone's called to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Everyone's called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But if you're not keeping a close watch on your life, you won't even know where to start. You should take time to keep a close watch on your life. Now, some people take this to a very unhealthy extreme where they are narcissistic, self-involved, self-infatuated. Oh, God doesn't love me today because I screwed up. God really loves me today because I was awesome. That's not what this is talking about. This says... All that doctrine you're watching, you better make sure it's intersecting with your life. Why must we keep a close watch on doctrine and life? Why? It's an obvious answer, but I just want to make sure we get it. Why do I, as a leader of this church, have to watch my doctrine and my life closely? So I don't lead you astray. Other people are watching the doctrine in life. I, as a leader of this church, have to watch my doctrine in life because other people are watching my doctrine in life. A good Christian leader knows that they are to live as a model for others. And I use myself as an example just because I'm an elder here, but I'm not the only leader in this church. There's leaders all throughout the church. That's the whole point of this thing is, is you're, you're, you're being a good leader so that you can set an example for others who will be good leaders. Leaders aren't just elders, and leaders aren't just deacons. The leadership officially of the church is made up of those two things, but there are, you, you each have leadership roles in your own life, and you are supposed to be able to look to your leadership and learn from them and have an example set for you. It's very humbling, because I know I'm not perfect at all. Devers says this. Maybe this will humble all of us. Our words, together with our actions, will teach either truth or something else. And if it's not truth, it's a lie. So our words, together with our actions, will teach either truth or lie. So how should the leader live? One of the key points that Paul makes is one that he's made before. We see what a leader should teach, how, so how should the leader live? We know that part of their living is teaching, but there's other parts of their living that's not teaching. So how should they live? True Christianity and therefore true Christian leadership is self-sacrificing. A real leader must have the ability to help others um, think more than just themselves. He must lead others to think of the congregation as a whole, as he sets an example as one who does not think only of himself, but thinks of the congregation as a whole. Paul tells Timothy that authority is good, and in some key areas, it's a real blessing. The first area is between church and state. He says authority is not a bad thing. Why do we sometimes default into saying authority is a bad thing. What's some of our baggage? Say that again. Authority gone bad. bad. Yeah, some people don't do well with authority and they misuse it. They abuse people with it. They lord themselves over others. They are domineering. So authority gone bad is a problem and we've all seen it in some measure. So sometimes when we see authority, we think I need to be careful and wait until that goes bad. Some of us don't have much positive view of authority. What are some other reasons that we don't have a positive view of authority? 
Yeah, yeah. It represents you having to be held accountable. Why don't we want to be held accountable? Yeah, authority says, has to kind of swallow, you know, you're not the boss of me. That, that's, that's what I hear my kids say to each other sometimes. And then usually if I hear it enough, I say, I'm the boss of all of you, go to bed. Because I get tired of hearing that. But you're not the boss of me. That's something that we start as kids. And as adults, sometimes we just keep on thinking, you're not the boss of me. I got this. I'm in charge. Self-serving, arrogant, sinful people want to be in control, and I got this, and I don't need any help. Those who are moved by the gospel move towards accountability, and they can understand the beauty of authority. But we do have baggage. So the church and the state, in 2, 1 through 4, it says this. Like I'm thinking, when you get pulled over, do you think, I am so glad he was there to keep me from speeding? Is that your first thought? No, usually your first thought is, oh, this jerk's got nothing better to do than pester me, and I'm a taxpayer, blah, blah, blah. Two, one through four, so about those authorities. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why is God concerned with peace that's kept by the state? Yeah, because he's concerned for everyone to do that. God has a concern for everyone he's created. And part of his concern for the the state keeping the peace through the law is so that we can live a quiet, godly life that is fitting as those who are created in his image. So here's my question. And man, I know this is, just don't go crazy with it, okay? Because I know that this is a a question that could be a, a real barn burner. In our setting today, what is it that might keep someone from praying for their government leaders. I didn't vote for him. I don't like his character. What would keep you from what or what would keep someone else from praying for their leaders? Not want to be incriminating. Self-indicting. Say that again. Yeah, we don't want to be proven wrong. I want this loser to fail. Okay, what else? What might keep us from praying? Busyness? Yeah, it's not a priority. What else? Yeah, the whole system screwed up. What's the point? Yeah. What else? God's in control. It doesn't matter. That is the self-righteous prayer. I'm so familiar with that. Like, uh, I believe in God's sovereignty. Why do I have to pray for this loser? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe because God and his sovereignty told you to. Remember, this is very humbling. Remember, as part of our Bible study, we have to consider what it says before we consider what it says to us. Because when you consider what it says in its own setting, it speaks more loudly and more clearly to you in your setting when you first understand what it says in its setting. So let's go back to the setting that Paul is speaking this in. Ephesus, Rome. Paul was telling these young Christians to pray for the Roman emperor who would one day cut Paul's head off. Take that in for a minute. If you spent the last eight years not praying for Obama because you're a conservative and you don't like him, Paul is urging the young Christians to pray for the Roman emperor, the one who would literally remove his head from his body for sharing the gospel. Pray for the Roman emperor. And not just that, thank God for the Roman emperor. That's what people do who trust God. That's what people do who believe the gospel. They don't, they don't try to make sense of it in their setting without first looking at it in, this, in, the, in its proper setting. Christians today have no room to say, well, I didn't vote for him, so I'm not going to pray for him, or I disagree with his policies, so I'm not going to pray for him, or I believe in God's sovereignty, so I'm not going to pray for him. You don't have a single reason that is biblical not to pray for your leaders in the government. So... How might this inform us today and help us to encourage others? What are some things we might be able to tell to others in light of this information? Pray for your government. Thank you, Patrick. I mean, you're at work, and this comes up with a Christian. So, I mean, this really applies to Christians, right? Because non-believers aren't going to pray to God in the name of Jesus anyway, right? So we're really talking about Christians. This is something that we can do to hold each other accountable. And, and Christians all hold each other accountable, not just the ones in the same church. Christians are Christians. So it comes up at work. How does, how does this truth weave its way into your conversation? <laughs> Let me reverse it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 because we're all individual, freedom-loving citizens. Yes! Yeah, let's pray for this moron that I just bashed for 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly, because what I said, let me back up a little, what I was going to say is, what is the setting usually like when you're having political conversation with people, even if they're Christians? It's not usually talking about the, the benefits of a policy that you mostly disagree with. It's not usually talking about um, the silver lining. It's usually emphatic statement in opposition that usually leads to mockery and contempt. Usually that's what it is. We are, we are a nation that um, that doesn't naturally do anything other than be divided. Um, and we're probably a world that does that. But in America, we've got this unique system that allows us to choose this side 
and hate everything about this side. To such a degree that Democratic Christians wonder how a person can be Republican and be a Christian. And in a like manner, Republican Christians wonder how can a Democratic person be a Christian and a Democrat. We are so divided because, in part, we've totally abandoned this call to pray for our leaders. So it should inform us. So there's good authority between the church and the state, and if that's not scary enough to talk about, there's also good authority between men and women. Look at 2, 8 through 14. Let's look at what Paul says to Timothy. Not what Pastor Scott says in the Wednesday night study, but what Paul says to Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, uh, that women should adorn themselves in respectful, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not, braided hair, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing. That's actually singular, it's interesting. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. My mom has been a minister of the gospel for uh, about 30 years. And we love joking about this. It's always funny. Um, we, we have some good banter back and forth. Um, a few years ago, in one of the first women's retreats, they asked some of the pastors to come and pray for the women and share a verse up front. And, uh, and I, I dared Greg Fields to share this verse in front of the women as the one guy in the room. I said, hey, Greg, the verse you should share is in 1 Timothy. And you should get up there in front of them and say, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet and then just pray. And he did it. Was anyone, were, any, were any of y'all there when that happened? It was, I couldn't believe he did it. I, I had made it as a joke and then he got up there and did it. And uh, Greg has an uncanny ability to do weird stuff like that and get away with it. But, but this is uncomfortable to us, Right? I mean, this, this can seem offensive if you're a woman, right? It can seem offensive if you're a man who appreciates the respect that a woman deserves. It can seem offensive. Why does it seem offensive? As no one raises their hands to answer. It's counterculture. Not feminist. Seems demeaning. Okay. Imperative without the indicative. Okay? Yeah, yeah. If you don't read them in light of the big picture, yeah. What are the two reasons given for prohibiting women from teaching and ruling men? What are the two reasons given? Adam was formed first and Eve was deceived first. That's the reasons that are given in this letter from Paul. To Timothy. To be clear, this verse is a problem for some people because some people have really taken this verse and run in the wrong direction with it. This does not mean that all Christian men have authority over all Christian women at all times. 
if you try to exercise authority over my wife, I'm going to throat punch you. You understand that? Like that, that's kind of what this is, is outlining. Not all Christian men have all authority over all Christian men all of the time. It simply means that in the context of the local church, the position of elder is restricted to men. It doesn't mean women don't ever teach, but it does mean that women don't have authority over men. So in the context of the local church, which is the context of this letter, Paul to Timothy giving direction on the local church, what to do, this simply means that in the context of the local church, the position of elder is restricted to men. What we believe in here at Crosspoint, just to be clear, is something called complementarianism. Men and women complement one another. It means Christian women stand equally with Christian men before God. This does not mean, this verse does not mean that Christian men are better than women. It means we have different roles, but in, in the eyes of God and before God, we have an equal standing. And we're complementarianism because the difference of our roles complement one another. There is no room for men to be haughty and arrogant and domineering over women. That is when you take this verse and turn it into a false doctrine. Why? Because that's not how our Lord is with us. That, I mean, if, if, if even our marriages are supposed to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, who gave himself up? So if you are a man and you are a leader, you give yourself up for those you lead. So that, this is a hard verse because it's been messed with over the years and misapplied and wronged. Women have been wronged because of it. So the roles are different and complement one another. We're complementarian. If you have any other questions about that, please feel free to let me know. Uh, but I don't want to get bogged down on it. And there's no way I'm going to ask, you know, ask if you all have any questions in this section. We're just going to move right along. Between church leaders and church members, look at 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. <laughs> Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity. Keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit like the false teachers and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The list of characteristics and virtues in this section would have been a really obvious indication that the false teachers in the Ephesian church were not living up to these standards. So we've got to remember the context here. Yes, it gives us an ability to see and understand and, and really go after what an elder and a deacon should be in our setting. But in this setting, one of the things that this character list and this virtue list shows is how utterly insufficient the false teachers were in the Ephesian church. Leaders within the church should be individuals whose lives are particularly marked by a gospel-produced and Holy Spirit-given godliness and others-centeredness. Not lovers of money, but lovers of strangers. Authority should not be given to people who are self-focused, but to people who reflect the good and the kind authority, the good and kind authority of God. 
thereby blessing those they serve by leading. So what's at the heart of this good leadership? The clear message of this letter is that the heart of good leadership is to live not for one's own gain, but for God's good pleasure. Look at 5.1. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. That includes Timothy. Timothy's an elder. So what happens if an elder is somewhere and there's an older guy who's not an elder? Well, me and Bill Ruth have breakfast fairly often. Not as often as I'd want, but fairly often. And according to this, I am never to rebuke him, but to encourage him as I would my father. I'm an elder. Bill's not an elder right now. I said right now. I didn't mean to say that out loud, but I have high hopes. Um, uh, But I don't ever rebuke him in a way that is not fitting for a younger man. I encourage him the same way I would my father. If you ever consider as a younger man rebuking an older man, I want you to think about what it would be like if you were rebuking your dad. You just don't do it. It's not fitting. In everyday life, it's not fitting. So you, um, you encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. So older men, don't treat younger men like chumps. You treat them like they're your brother, like an, like an equal even. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. All that he just said, the whole reason he gave that direction is that it is pleasing in the sight of God. The motivation is what is pleasing to God. That's why we do the things we do in faith. Our motivation in leadership, our motivation for others, is God's good pleasure. Look at 2, 3 through 4. We already, we already touched on this, but in 2, 3 through 4 it says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why does God save us? According to that verse, why does God save us? For his glory, to come to the knowledge of truth. Personally, what's his personal? He has a personal interest in it. What is it? It pleases him. Why are you saved? Because it pleases God to save you. It's pleasing to God to save you. That's why anyone is saved. At the heart of good leadership is God's good pleasure, and what it's what it is. Um, pitted against in this letter is financial gain. There was a problem with these false teachers. In 6, 2 through 5, it just says, um, those who have uh, believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their goods serve um, service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It goes on to say, he has an unhealthy controversy, craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's implying imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain. So the background in this church is this. They teach because they love money. The culprits here are the false teachers. 
As he's explaining this, he's explaining what the false teachers are doing. And the false teachers teach because they love money. So if you want more students, you want more students in order to have more money. And so in order to have more students, they changed their doctrine so that people would like it. That's what made their teaching false. It would be like Crosspoint saying, guys, we've told y'all that we are leaning forward and, uh, and we want to reach more lost people and we're going to potentially be making some changes around here to try to, to really lean forward and make room for those in our community because we want to, to care about people having a seat and having a parking place. And one of the things we're going to do to reach more people, because um, some churches refer to people as giving units. I grew up in a church where I realized in the middle of a meeting, he's calling me a giving unit over and over again. This is weird, giving units. But in order to make more money, you need more giving units. So let's get more giving units by giving more giving units parking places and more giving units seats. And so what we'll do, in order to reach more people, let's stop talking about sin. That is such a downer for so many people. It's a real turnoff. It's not good marketing. So what we're going to do is take this doctrine of sin and we're going to not talk about it, but we're going to talk about all the blessings of God, all the love of God, all the goodness of God, all the peace and patience of God. But guys, we're just not going to talk about sin because it's just so darn negative. People aren't attracted to that. Y'all, as a a congregation with authority, at that mind should say, y'all have lost your mind. What are you doing? But that's what the false teachers were doing at Ephesus. It's not an anomaly. We need more people so we can have more money, so let's say what they want to hear. That's why Paul's so urgent with Timothy. Don't stray from the truth. Even when they're making more money than you and you're having a hard time making ends meet, don't worry. God is taking care of you. Consider the contrast in 6, 6 through 10. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these things, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmless and harmful um, desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Consider the contrast here. Side by side, we see these two things, godliness with contentment and love of money. And the question you should ask as we have this study and as we're wrapping it up right now is when people look at my life, which one do they see? Do they see godliness with contentment or love of money? Which one do they see? Because you should keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. People are watching. People are supposed to look to you to know what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live as those who are in Christ. What is obviously more important? Finally, we're just going to close with this strong encouragement from Paul to Timothy. In light of all that was going on there, this, now this, this ending sounds, it makes more sense. O Timothy, the last few verses, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it, Timothy. When those false teachers are bringing in more people, and when those false teachers are bringing in more money, and when you're poor and you can't, you can't eat a good meal, Timothy, guard that deposit entrusted. When the, when the government is threatening you, Timothy, with this deposit, 
I want you to pray for the Roman emperor. You're a member of a better kingdom. You have nothing to fear, Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Godly leadership must not have a strong desire for money, but they must have a strong desire to please God and lead others to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, as a leader of this church, and knowing that in this church we have many great leaders, uh, we're humbled by the text tonight. Thank you for your design. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessing. Help us to walk squarely in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.